just read a quotation from Henry Ford earlier um, this week, and he said, um, if you chop your own wood, you're going to get warmed twice. So you get warmed once from working and then once from from uh, from having it burned there for you. So um, I'm not sure how that applies to our heat situation, but if we do some kind of work here, Mike was suggesting jazzercise or something, but I told him only if he... Yeah, only if he let it, then um, then we would do it. But he declined. All right. Well, this morning we want to um, begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll finish up our series here on the essentials of the Christian faith. Father, we're thankful for Jesus Christ, and Lord, if if you'd take away everything from us, if if all that we have is lost, um, and we have only Christ, then then that will be enough. And so we praise you for his grace, praise you for his willingness to give of himself and um, and uh, surrender his will to yours so that uh, he, he could give us life. And Lord, we pray that the response of our hearts would be praise and and glad obedience to do your will. Help us to to love you more and to know you more this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question that we're trying to answer in this class is, what is a Christian? And much of what we spent the last five weeks um, trying to answer is is this question, what what is a Christian? And the way that we're going to find out what Christianity is about is we need to know who Christ is. Christ is about, or Christianity is about Christ. And so we, we decided the best way to, to determine that was to go to the, the original sources, that is, to the the text of the Gospels and find out, particularly the Gospel of Mark, find out who Christ is from there. And what was the image that we used to summarize the first three weeks? It was a stool, and the first leg was what? Jesus is the Son of God, so His deity. And then secondly, He was crucified. And thirdly, He was resurrected. Okay, So this is what um, the Gospel is founded upon this is this is the foundation of the gospel this stool that jesus is the son of god that he is god coming in human flesh to die on the cross and to to rise from the dead in order to pay for sin and and to prove that his payment for sin was worthwhile um and so then following that foundational set of of understandings that we see in the scripture in week four we considered more closely our relationship or our standing before god specifically what uh, on what basis does God accept us, right? If we were to stand before God, um, then then why would he accept us? If God is, is our judge, then, then what hope do we have? And we were reminded in the fourth lesson that we're not saved by merit or our own righteousness, but we are saved on the basis of God's free and loving grace alone. And the reason that we need that is because God demands 100% perfection and we can't attain to that. 100% perfection on our own. We need Christ, and um, and so uh, that's what God provides for us. He is the only hope of our salvation. Well, last week we began by answering the question, what is a Christian? And we're coming up with, here with a two-part answer. And the first part is, you can turn to Mark chapter 1, and we'll just look at this passage again. Mark 1.15. And we said that, that there are two parts, two basic components 
to what a Christian is. It's a person who first repents and then second, as we'll see today, believes. So verse 15 reads, and, and Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. So last week we spent all of our time talking about repentance and what it means to repent. And um, we, we learned or were reminded that repentance is not simply guilt or sadness, nor is it sacrifice or penance, but it's actually an attitude of Christ first in all aspects of our lives, including our will, ambitions, popularity, and our pride. And in repentance, we turn from sin to Christ. This week now, we want to transition to that second part at the end of verse 15, repent and believe. We want to talk about what it means to believe in the gospel. Because a Christian is one who repents and believes, does both of them. And, and uh, so we want to understand what it means to believe. And there seems to be so much confusion in, in society over what a Christian is. And therefore, it's, it's good to remind ourselves of what the Bible talks about when it describes a Christian. What, how does the Bible define a Christian? And, and so if you ask somebody, we talked about this last week, if you ask somebody, what, what is a Christian? Uh, some people will say, well, a Christian is someone who's been baptized, someone who prays a prayer, someone who, who attends church, someone who reads their Bible. And all those things might be true. That, those may be ways to describe a Christian, but those are not fundamentally what a Christian is. A Christian is fundamentally someone who repents of their sins and believes in Christ. And so what is it that, that a Christian believes? Can, can a Christian simply believe anything? I mean, do they get to define what they believe? Can I believe that Jesus was just a good teacher and you believe that Jesus was the Son of God crucified and resurrected and we both be Christians? If I think that Jesus is just a, a good teacher. And the answer is no. A Christian, according to Mark 1.15, is someone who believes what? What does it say there in verse 15? Believes what? In the gospel. So it believes something, not just that Jesus was a good teacher, but rather that, that the, the good news of his, back to the stool, that he is God, the Son, that he is crucified and resurrected. That is the gospel. Repentance and belief in the good news are what make a Christian. So what does it mean to have faith in Christ? What does it mean? Does it just mean blind acceptance that we just kind of, you know, whatever you say, you know, I'm going to accept? Is, is, it, is it irrational or uneducated? Is it empty? Um, what, what are the necessary components of faith? And that's what we want to answer today. So on the second page of your handout, you see this first one. Turn to chapter 5 and we'll look at this story about Jairus. And this story actually serves as kind of a bookend to another story that we're going to skip over and then come back to. And it's a story about the woman with the, the hemorrhage, uh, beginning in verse 25. So we're going to start with verse 21 here and then read through verse 24, and then we'll skip down to verse 35. So, so would someone read verses 21 to 24? Him, 
So I'm going to read verses 35 to 39, and then someone can follow that 40 to the end. 40 to 43, that is. So 35 to 39. All right, so look back up to verse 35 and try to imagine yourself in this situation. How do you think Jairus would have felt when he heard this message? Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Okay, hopeless, a little overwhelmed, um, empty. But what did Christ say to him? Look at verse 36. He says, Do not be afraid any longer only believe. So Jairus's feelings here are leading him to feel hopeless and wanting to give up, despair, overwhelmed. But Jesus says, put your confidence in me. And and what we learn from this is that faith is is not based on a feeling primarily, but it's rooted in what Christ has said and what he's done. That's why he says, don't be afraid, only believe. And, and this point is extremely important, important because the Christian faith is not dependent upon our feelings, nor is it simply an experience that we once had or are trying to recreate again and again, despite what the televangelists or the, the so-called Christian books uh, try to teach us, right? Or teach other people, hopefully. But, but true Christian faith is founded upon the facts that God has, uh, of what He has done through Christ as recorded in the Scripture. Did you notice what Jesus says here in verse 36? He doesn't say, you know, start believing once you feel like it. I know you feel like this is going to be terrible and it's all going to work out um, terribly for you, but, but once you start feeling like it, then put your faith in me. That's not what he says. Instead, he says, listen, you need to have confidence in me, and, and I would suggest to you, despite your feelings, because our feelings are... Um, although they should not be completely dismissed. They're part of who we are, right? But, but our feelings often come and go with the circumstances of life, don't they? They rise and fall with the circumstances of life. And if we're too heavily reliant upon our feelings, um, then, then we're not going to believe. If we're waiting around till we feel like, okay, so let's, let's take it to a Christian discipline that we have, okay? Um, we are commanded to pray. We're commanded to, to know God. And I think that that has to be done through knowing His Word. 
So if we wait around until we feel like praying, feel like reading the Bible, um, feel like coming together with believers who who we may not uh, have the best relationship with, you know, if we wait till our feelings do the leading, then we're not going to be following, okay? Because our feelings are generally not going to lead us that way. Instead, we need to say, listen, God told me I need to do this, and so I'm going to do it despite my feelings. Now, in our culture, what people like to do, and I would say even our Christian subculture, people like to say, well, that's hypocritical of you to, to do something that you don't feel like doing. But that's not what hypocr- hypocr- uh, hypocrisy is. Okay? Hypocrisy is saying that you're doing something and then you don't actually do it. So, so, so there's, a, there's a difference between that. Instead, we need to, to show, hey, God, I am going to come to this church service despite how I feel today, because I love you. This is an expression of my love. And, and I, think God is, is, um, I think God is pleased with that. Obviously, you know, eventually we should have joy and, and love to do that sort of thing, the thing that God wants us to do. But, but I think if on occasion our feelings aren't where they ought to be and we still do it anyway, I think God can be much pleased in it. Similar to how a, a husband you know, might come home and he might not feel like, talking you know you may just feel like crashing and and just watching a game or something and and um and yet the fact that he sits and listens to his children or his wife during that time when he feels like it you know i'd rather be doing something else actually is an expression of his love isn't it for his wife that i'm going to do this even though at the time my feelings aren't driving me and um and in a sense when he does that, there's a, there's a sense in which he's actually leading his feelings, isn't he? And I think that's the same thing with regard to to, to saving faith and ongoing faith. That that our feelings can be all over the map, but but as we learn to allow our faith to lead, then what we're most concerned about is what God has said, not how I feel. So so instead of you know I don't quite feel like it sh- should be. Well, what has God told me that I need to do? And this is what I'm going to do. And this is what he's teaching us, I think, through Jairus, is that, you know, your feelings may not be leading you to accept what I'm about to show you, but you need to understand what I have said. I am Christ, the Son of the living God, and, and you need to follow me. That's what faith is. Faith is trusting in Christ's deeds and his words, not in our feelings. What's amazing is that we know so much more than Jairus, don't we? that Jairus had heard of Christ's miracles and his healing powers secondhand and w- likely why he came to Jesus. But, but we know so much more. We know the whole story. We know that Christ actually came in, who, in human flesh and he was crucified and he was resurrected and that he now lives for us. And so how much more should we trust Christ because we have such a, a wealth of knowledge about him, so much more than what Jairus had. So first, faith is trusting in Christ and His Word, not our our feelings, not following our feelings. Secondly, let me stop there first. Do you have any questions on that? Comments? Great. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, my understanding is that Jesus was actually offering the kingdom to the Jews at that time, and if they would have accepted, he would have established the kingdom there. But 
Obviously, God in his providence knew that they wouldn't accept. He offered it. They rejected the gospel. They rejected the Messiah, the king of the kingdom, and therefore the kingdom's now delayed until the time in which the Jews do accept Jesus, which will be at the end of the tribulation. You know, that you can have at least that 144,000 and per- perhaps more. And at that time, all of Israel, all in the sense of the majority, um, will believe, and that's when Christ will come and reign over them. But, but uh, yes, that's a good question with regard to the kingdom of God. Um, there's another passage, I think it's in Matthew 18, that kind of uses that phrase, the kingdom of God, interchangeably with saving faith. Let's see if I can find it. It might not be that one. Yeah. Yeah, and the kingdom of heaven is just um, is a synonym for the kingdom of God. Where's that now, Matthew? Or, um, Matthew 18:1. Right. Yeah, and Matthew in his gospel uses the word kingdom of heaven. He, I think he only uses kingdom of God, the phrase kingdom of God one time. And the reason for that is because he's talking to Jews and they never used the name, the actual name of God. They felt it was so sacred that he couldn't even say it. So Matthew's just kind of appealing to that, and that's why I say it's just a synonym. So when they're saying who's greatest in the kingdom, I think they're talking about who's greatest in in eternity. You know, when it comes to this kingdom that Christ is going to set up. Now, when when they're thinking about the kingdom, they're thinking about something that comes on this earth, rightfully so, where Jesus reigns over it, and they're expecting that they're going to be some have some high position. That's why they're concerned. And um, I can't find the passage I was looking for. Yeah. Exactly. All right. I I don't want to waste all your time looking for that. So I'll move on. And um, let's let's look at the second one here. Faith is not only trusting in Christ and His Word not our feelings, but trusting Jesus as Lord, not just as Savior. So let's read back to Mark 5. And would someone read verses 25 to 29, and then someone else 30 to 34. around to see the, the, or the woman who had done it. But the woman, hearing 
spoken the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So here we have a woman who for 12 years is enduring this this um, physical problem and she spent all that she's had on the doctors. You know, people like this who have a, a, an ailment and they go all the way around. You know, they, they try all the Mayo Clinics of the day and this is her. She spent it all. And then she hears Christ and thinks, you know what? This man has the power to heal me. But instead of going up and, and talking to him and asking him, she just feels that... Or feels... She just determines that if she touches the just the edge of his garment, then then um, then he will be able to heal her even through that. And amazingly, it did. Her her faith, Jesus says, is what made her whole. That's what verse 34 says. That your faith is what made you well. But after after being healed, Jesus didn't allow her to be hidden in the crowd, did he? Instead, he said, "You need to reveal yourself." Um. It's true that Jesus was a miracle worker. We, we saw that in the second study when we were looking at some of the attributes of Jesus. But that's not all he is. And that's what not what he wants that woman to go away with. He, he doesn't want people just to think, oh, he's a person who heals sicknesses. Because he's much more than that. And, and he doesn't allow for secret disciples, as we saw last week. That a person who repents is not going to do that in, in secret and just you know kind of remain in their little hole. Um, a person who repents is someone who actually comes and and and, uh, and presents themselves before the Lord and is not ashamed of Christ in that way. And the point is that Jesus doesn't save us and then let us go our own way. No, He comes to us with plans to change our lives. And too often in our day, Jesus has been presented as simply a solution to the problem that we have. So if you have a, a bad marriage or if you're, you're you're struggling at your job or you know, you're struggling with finances, or even this, even if you're having a problem with your sin, then Jesus can help you. And it's true that Jesus can help you, but that's not the ultimate reason that he came. He didn't come to to heal your sickness or to heal your marriage primarily or to heal your job situation or your finances. Primarily, he came to heal your sin, but he didn't just come to heal your sin. That is to, to save you from the penalty of sin. And, and I think that's what I'm, I'm trying to say is that, that so many times that, that we tell other people the gospel and use the gospel as a means to give someone, you know, fire insurance, that, that you don't have to fear hell anymore because you're now with Christ. But it's much more than that, isn't it? That, that Christ not only demands that you, um, that you turn from your sins and believe in him, but that also you follow him. And that's why he says you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And anyone who's, who starts at the plow and looks back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, he's not saying you have to earn your way to me. He's saying, listen, if you're going to follow me, then follow me. And that may mean you have to give up your family who, who may reject you. And, and that's the point here is that Jesus calls us not only to be uh, to, to look to Him as our Savior, but to look to Him as our Lord, our Master. Someone who now claims the rights. It's, it doesn't work for us to just say, you know, God, I give you my heart so that you can save me. But I'm not giving you my whole life. Okay, Remember the illustration we used last week with the Holy Spirit coming in and taking residence in our home? That is in the home of our hearts. And, and so 
we invite him in. He saves us. We invite him in the front door and we say, okay, now just stay here. Just sit on a chair here. Okay, and I'm going to get back to the way I want to live. I want to get back to the sins that I enjoy and, and all those things. So I'll, I'll let you be my savior, Jesus, effectively, but you cannot be my master. You can't have everything. And what I would suggest to you is that is not saving faith. That is not saving faith. The, the woman eventually uh, revealed herself when Jesus said, Who touched me? And the disciples said, What do you mean, who touched you? We're in a huge crowd where everybody's pressing in on you. Lots of people touched you. And he said, No, someone touched me because power went out of me. And, and so she humbly comes before him and uses this as a point to, to teach her, I think, but also the rest of the crowd, that he is calling for people to follow him. In fact, here's the passage I was referring to, Mark 8. Let's turn there. Mark 8, 34 and 38. Mark 8, 34, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father, the holy angels. So faith is trusting in Christ and his word, not our feelings, trusting in Jesus as Lord, not just as our Savior. All right, thirdly, faith is unwavering childlike trust and personal commitment. So turn to chapter 10. And would someone read verses 13 to 16? They were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Okay, so what's the what is the analogy that Jesus is using when, using when it comes to children? Children have this this trust that that doesn't have strings attached, right? That they're willing to just give you everything because they're they're um, they have this innocence about about them, don't they? They're not kind of always looking at people crookedly and thinking, what could that person possibly be trying to do to me. Instead, they have this, they're just willing to fall on you. Why? Because they recognize their great dependence, right? If you think about it from the smallest of children, what, what can they do other than depend on, on other people? And, and that's what Jesus is saying we must do when it comes to our faith. See, if we're, we're leaning, you know, we got all these crutches and, and all these things that we're leaning on in order to get to God, and Jesus says, you need to lean on me completely with a childlike trust, We'll say, okay, we'll lean on you. We're still leaning over here, right? What Jesus is saying is, no, you need to do it like a child. How would a child lean on me? And, and it is that he gives himself wholly dependent upon me. He is wholly dependent upon me. And, and that's what it is necessary for saving faith. That, that it's not simply an intellectual assent or, or even a, a, an emotional fear of God that, that's part of salvation, but, but it's also a complete unconditional, unwavering trust like a child has in their parents. Perhaps you've heard of the illustration. I'm not sure whether it's true or not, but it still serves as a good illustration. It's the man who was a famous tightrope walker who went over the Niagara Falls and um, did it with an empty wheelbarrow. 
and he came back to the other side and and he said to the one of the reporters, you know, do you think that I could actually take this wheelbarrow with a person in it and make it across? And one of the reporters said, well, I think you do. I think you're the most amazing stunt artist in, in the world of all time, and I think you could do it. And, and the man said, well, then get in the wheelbarrow, <laughs> right? And, and that really changes how much that reporter trusted in this man who could do this because in one sense he did believe in this stunt artist, that he could do it. But but it was an intellectual kind of belief. It's a lot different to say, yes, I believe, and to say, yes, I believe. You know, I, I'm leaning on you fully. There's nothing that I have. There's, like we sing, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Right? There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And so, God, the only thing that we can do is lean on Christ. And that is saving faith, friends. That, that is what it means to trust in God. It's fully relying on Him with complete devotion in, in what the Scriptures have told us about who Jesus is and what He's done, that He is the Redeemer, the resurrected Lord, and He is God in human flesh. Any questions on that? Number four, it is understanding that God accepts me. Turn over to John chapter 5. Faith is understanding that God accepts me. And someone would would someone please read verse twenty four. Truly, truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Okay, so here Jesus tells us something about believing something now about what's going to happen in the future. And he says that whoever hears my word and believes has eternal life. So the question for us is, is what Jesus saying is true? Is what he's saying true? Because if it's true, then we have to accept that, that when I believe that, that God grants this to me, I have eternal life. And that doesn't mean that we boast arrogantly when we say that we know that we have eternal life or that we know that we're saved. We're simply doing that first part of faith, aren't we? We're taking God at His Word. When, when we say, I, I know for sure that I have eternal life, we're not, saying, we're not saying anything about our goodness. We're simply saying, Jesus has promised something to me, and I believe Him fully, and I accept what He has promised to me. And that's how I know that I, am, that I, I have eternal life that I will not face condemnation, that I will not face the wrath of God. There's nothing proud about that statement. That's actually, um, that's actually a, a reliance, a humble reliance on what Christ has said, not on what we have done. And, and the reason we know that is because Jesus says it. Whoever believes will not be condemned. They will not receive judgment. They will not come into judgment. And so... Part of faith is recognizing that God accepts me on the basis of what? On the basis of Christ's righteousness, absolutely. And, and in, on His righteousness alone. Not on anything that I have done, but according to His mercy that He saved me, Titus 3.5. So faith is not hollow, it's not blind, it's not 
rooted in mere feelings or superstitions. You know, I, I, I don't know if this for sure. There's this thing out there, uh, this, this reasoning that goes on in some of, um, I guess, apologetic-type circles, people who are trying to defend their faith, which is a good thing. We have a class here on, on apologetics that I taught not too long ago. And we should be able to defend our faith, always be ready. But, but there is a question that some people use to try to, to, um, to prove that what they're doing is right. And they say it this way. Okay, let's say you live your whole life as if God doesn't exist. What happens when you get to the day of judgment? Let's say that God does exist. You get to that day of judgment. What happens? Well, God's going to judge you. You're, you're lost and condemned in hell forever. But let's say that even though you don't fully believe it, this isn't the way they say it, but this is the way I kind of am, am putting some words in their mouth. But, but let's say you don't fully believe that God exists, but then you decide, I'm going to just believe it and live that way so that when I get to the next life, when God, if God does exist, then, then I'm okay. I'm in heaven. If he doesn't exist, I haven't really lost anything, right? I just lost maybe a, you know, some, some of the time in my life that I, I could have been spending on something else. So you're better off. The point is, and the, 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 the point is, is, you're better off in this place over here where you just live as if God exists rather than living as if God doesn't exist. Has anybody heard that kind of argument before? Okay. But I would suggest to you that that is not saving faith. To say that, oh, well, you know, I'm going to live as if God exists. No, it's, that's, that's kind of this thing where we're kind of, okay, I believe God exists. I'm still leaning on my own righteousness and, what, and kind of getting back to my own works and, and I'm not making Christ my Lord. And what the Scriptures call for is, listen, you need to... To, to give yourself fully to God, lay out completely, um, completely give yourself to Him. That, that's true saving faith. It's not an experiential understanding. It's not simply an experiential understanding. It's part of it, but, but it includes knowledge of what Christ has done, who He is, what He's done, and then it involves this um, recognition that God accepts me on the basis of nothing that I have done. True faith exhibits itself in personal trust. Like, um, like a child to his parents. All right, any questions on that? Comments? I want to do a couple more things before we finish. I want to finish up my answer to Greg. I did find the passage that I was looking for. So I'm going to respond to that here in just a second. But before we do that, let's look at this assignment from last week at the top of the third page there. On the handout, I asked you to read through these verses. So let's go to these to start with, and then I want to answer the question, what gifts does God give to those who repent and believe? What gifts does God give to those who repent and believe? All right, someone read verse 8. Okay, so what is the promise here for those who repent and believe? We will have the... Holy Spirit. Okay, good. Then you can turn to chapter 2 as soon as you finish writing that. Chapter 2, verse 10. What gifts does God give to those who repent and believe? Someone read verse 10 for us. So this... That's good. So this is actually um, implicit... 
um, within this story, because this is actually a larger story. This is actually one of the first stories that we looked at in this series of classes, and that is that this man came, and he was lame, and he wanted to be healed, but instead of being healed, Jesus um, forgave his sins, and the Pharisees were like, well, how, how do you think you can do that? I mean, only God can do that. And, and he said, but in order to show you that I can forgive sins, I'm going to heal him anyway. And so that's what he does. And his point is, is that I am the one who came not only to heal physically, but I'm actually the one to, to heal your greatest problem, and that is your sin. That you have this deep sin issue and, and that's, that separates you from God. And so Christ has the power to forgive sins, and that's the answer. Our sins will be what? Forgiven, verse 10. All right, and then chapter 10, verse 30. Okay, so there's several promises in here, but but what what do you think uh, the answer is there? We will have what eternal life, similar to John 5:24 as well. Okay, so no matter what you give up, you may have to give up a lot in order to come to Christ. And in our American culture, we tend not to. Although some of you may have families that that are completely opposed to you coming to Christ, so I don't want to minimize that. But but uh, certainly around the world and throughout history, there have been there have been there have been many sacrifices for the sake of Christ. And what he's saying is, listen, all those things will be repaid to you or rewarded. Okay, Not that you're earning something from God, but, but that God rewards you for your, your following of him, your willingness to follow him. So this is the good news. This is the gospel. That's what the gospel means, the good news about Jesus Christ. Um, not just for me or the person sitting next to you, but this good news is intended for you as well that Jesus calls each one of us to come and repent and believe and, and that failure to do so will result in everlasting destruction. This is a personal decision, as you see there in your handout. No one can make it for you. Um, and so I think a good question that we all should ask ourselves is on what basis does God accept me? It's just a good thing to be thinking about and to make sure that we are confident in why does God accept me? And the wrong answer, obviously, is on the basis of my own works or my own righteousness. And, and so our only hope, the only way that, that, that we are going to be accepted by God is through the righteousness of Christ and, and His finished work on the cross. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That, that we are born sinners, condemned before a holy God, and we are under the sentence of condemnation and death. And this is a sobering thought. But, but we're all going to die one day, one day, and after that, the judgment, Hebrew says. And so we need to make a decision now. God's not going to give us another chance when we get to the next life. We need to choose now to repent and to believe. Consider this following passage here from a, a gospel tract called Me, a Christian. A Christian, then, is someone who recognizes that Jesus Christ has the right to control his or her life. They recognize that they are rebels against Jesus Christ, and they deserve to be punished. A Christian believes that Jesus Christ died for him or her on the cross, taking the punishment which their sins deserved. A Christian is a person who has responded to God's call to repent. They have turned from rebelling against Jesus and submitting to him. This person knows that he or she has been forgiven. They know that God has made them a new person and that Jesus lives in their life. 
They know this because they see their changed desires, attitudes, and behavior. This person trusts God with his or her whole life. So if you're not a Christian, will you become one today? Or can I say on the basis of Scripture, you must become one? That is, you must repent and believe. And to reject that message, to repent and to believe, is to reject Jesus to your own condemnation. Let me invite you to turn back to Matthew chapter 19, and I'll just finish up this um, question with regard to the kingdom of God. And in studying this passage, I found it helpful just the way that the the phrase the kingdom of God is used interchangeably with other phrases throughout this text. And maybe this will help you think about how Jesus often used it. This is the story of the rich young ruler. And, and it starts in verse 16. And someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? So that's the first phrase we need to think about. And, and Jesus responds, verse 17, Why are you asking me what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to, notice he doesn't say obtain eternal life like the rich young ruler said. He says enter into life, then keep the commandments. And then the man said to Jesus, verse 18, which ones? And Jesus told him which ones. In verse 20, the young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? And Jesus said, If you wish to, notice he doesn't say obtain eternal life or, or what was the second one? If you wish to enter into life, here he says, if you wish to be complete. So here's another way he talks about saving faith or salvation. If you wish to be complete, then, then do this. At the end of verse 21, when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he, was, he had owned much property. And Jesus says to his disciples, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And if we're to the disciples and we don't understand that the kingdom of heaven has to do with eternal life, then we might say, well, why are you talking about the, the kingdom of heaven right now? Because uh, I thought he was just talking about eternal life and being complete and, and receiving life. And Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, verse 24, than a rich man to enter. And I think this is the only time in Matthew's gospel where he uses this phrase, kingdom of God. Other gospel writers do. But again, I think this is because he's appealing to the um, the Jews primarily. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were astonished, and they said, then who can, we would expect, obtain eternal life, then who can receive the kingdom of heaven, who can receive the kingdom of God, but instead, who, what do they say? Who can be saved? And then the response is a great one that, that we should all remember. With people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So do you see how that phrase, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, is used interchangeably with receive eternal life, obtain eternal life, be complete, be saved? You see that in the passage? So I think that kind of helps us. Sometimes we, we I mean, we should um, pull in lots of history into that phrase, kingdom of God, because it means a lot in the Old Testament. But when we look at it in terms of how Jesus uses it and how he talks about it to the, to the disciples, one of the things that he's primarily talking about is to have a right relationship with God that leads into this eternal kingdom that will mean that, that those people will have a relationship with God, that God will be their God and they will be his people. Does that help at all or does that cloud the muddy the waters a little bit more? I was just thinking of that uh, we have a relationship with Christ and he 
perfect so that doesn't mean that you know the days that we don't do it we're not Christians or you know because I didn't do it every day I'm not a Christian that is not what it means but but it does mean that Christians are going to be growing in that way that that um, because we have this relationship with God we're going to want to spend time time with him and um, and so that does mean that we we work on that relationship just like we do any other person that we love any other thoughts or questions Bill. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I think he had turned his money into an idol and God or Jesus saw that, you know, other people that money doesn't mean that rich people can't be saved. The point is, is that no one can be saved. That that's what he said, you know, it's it's impossible for anyone to come to God, but with man it's impossible. With with God all things are possible. So all right, let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for uh, the relationship that we can have and the confidence that we can have in knowing that you accept us on the basis of what he has done. Help us to live in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen.